Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing and all of our other podcasts over at blisterreview.com. As always, we are broadcasting this episode from the Gunnison Valley of Colorado, and you should come spend some time in our wide open spaces and do some running or hiking or biking on our amazing network of trails here in Gunnison and Crested Butte. Now, this week on the show, our guest is Addie Bracey, who went from being an up-and-coming track and cross-country athlete to being an up-and-coming and then quite accomplished trail runner with a top 10 finish last year at Western States and a second place finish at Leadville and a world championship team gold medal in mountain running. And I'm probably going to just get tired if I keep going on here naming Addie's accomplishments, so I won't. But one rather telling thing that I think you'll notice in this conversation is that Addie and I don't actually talk about any of her specific races or achievements, which is probably a sign that I'm not a very good interviewer, but it might also be because there's just so much other stuff to talk about with Addie that it's easy for the conversation to move elsewhere, such as the psychology of sports performance. And I will say that Addie and I do talk quite a bit about Addie's background and how it led her to the study of this field and to the book that Addie is now writing and finishing up on the topic of sports performance psychology. And then we talk about the organization that Addie co-founded with her partner, Corey Connor, called OutRun, which has the mission to empower and connect LGBTQ plus individuals within the running community and to create environment that is encouraging, supportive, and inclusive to all. And then along those lines, Addie lays out what she believes would be some of the most significant steps that the running community and race event organizers could take to make the running community more inclusive and more welcoming. And so that is what is on tap here for today. And it is my pleasure to now share with you my very interesting conversation with Addie Bracey. Here we go. Well, Addie, how are you today and where are you today? Uh, today, I am sitting at my house in Denver. I'm doing well overall. I think we both moved into new places sometime in February. Is that right? Yeah, we moved from just north of Boulder into like, you know, totally new neighborhood. And yeah, it was a weird time to move. That's for sure. I just had some friends over, you know, for the fourth and they were kind of giving me some grief about like, why do you still have so many boxes that have yet to be unpacked? And you were like, hey, I'm in the same boat. And so then I, you know, just came around and decided maybe this is a mark of like people that just have, you know, a lot of interesting things going on. <laughs> That's what I'm telling myself. I will say my parents just came to visit for the first time since I moved. And so I threw all the boxes down in our crawl space so they wouldn't see them. <laughs> so they think I'm all moved in but because I'm ashamed. But I, I'm with you. I'm on the same same page. Let's just take it as a mark of uh, really high achievers is what I'm what I'm going to try to kind of jujitsu this whole thing around to. Feel free to use that if you like. Let us talk about this interesting story of yours and kind of hear a bit about how you first got involved with the sport of running. 
Yeah, gosh, it's such a, it, it just goes back so far. My dad is a big runner. He, I mean, he's older now, he's almost 70, so he doesn't run much anymore, but, um, you know, was just a big fan of the sport before I was even born, you know, was going to watch Prefontaine run and Frank Shorter and just was such a big fan. So I just remember when I was a kid, he was still just doing races for fun and doing like some triathlons and stuff. Um, and I would just like see him going for runs and I just wanted to go with him. So it started small where he would go down the street to the track in our neighborhood and I would, you know, maybe join him for a lap or two. And then that turned into like five K's on the weekend, you know, by the time I was maybe eight or nine. And honestly, for a while, it was just like the way I spent time with my dad. It was like our mutual interest. And then I think probably around sixth grade, I guess, maybe when I got to middle school and there was an actual team that I tried out. And I, I was always doing sports and athletics, but I, did, I wasn't standing out in anything. I was like pretty average or maybe even below average. So then middle school was like kind of the first time where I was like, oh, wow, I'm like pretty decent at this. And then that made it a lot more fun and maybe became a little more structured and competitive from then on. But it's just, it started with me just loving it and it's continued that way. Like I feel really fortunate to still have the relationship with the sport that I do, you know, 25 years into it pretty much. So. And let's talk a little bit about this. Um, I mean, you talk about this kind of moment of discovery where you're like, turns out I might be kind of decent at this. And then from there, talk a little bit about this trajectory of yours through like high school and then on into college. Yeah. So I grew up in North Carolina um, and by middle school, I had recognized that I wasn't really good at any other sports except running and soccer. And so I stuck with those two. And you know, with running, it was, you know, track. I think I got pretty close to breaking six minutes in the mile when I was in middle school, which was pretty good. And I uh, went into high school and still actually like preferred soccer. Like I really loved soccer. And growing up in North Carolina, you know, I was the women's Carolina team was so good and I was a huge fan. And so my dream was, you know, I was going to go to Carolina and play soccer. And I remember my maybe my freshman or sophomore year of high school, my dad kind of sat me down and I'm so, you know, it was hard to hear at the time, but I'm so thankful for him for doing this. He said, you know, I love you, Ad. You're just not that great at soccer. You're, you're okay at it. You know, I love watching you play, but you're not that, you're not going to play at Carolina, but you probably could run at Carolina. And I was like, done, sold. And so I quit playing soccer and, um, and focused on running. And that was my goal. And my parents went, like I grew up a Tar Heel fan. My parents went to college there and I really wanted to be an athlete there. And so kind of just made it my goal the next two or three years to get my times, you know, competitive enough to be able to walk onto the team or get recruited to run there. So let's talk a little bit about what events or disciplines did you start focusing on? And if I have this right, I think you did end up coming on as a walk-on. Is that correct? Yeah, I was technically recruited. Like I did go on a recruiting trip, but I didn't, you know, I I didn't get a scholarship or anything. Uh, there was nothing kind of tied to my performance. So I kind of considered, considered a walk-on just because I wasn't, you know, taking up a scholarship spot. Um, but, you know, I went there to run and knew that unless I really sucked, I probably had a spot on the team. But fortunately and unfortunately, I came on this summer. I graduated high school in 2004. So that was uh, the Athens Olympics. Um, and Shalane had just made the Olympic team and was still in school. She still had a semester of school left. And then two other women who made the next Olympic team were on the team there as well. Um, Alice Schmidt, who made it in the 800 and Aaron Donahue, who made it in the 1500. So, I mean, first week I was like, oh my God, like I'm in over my head. Um, you know, I ran a 513 mile in high school, which is respectable, but it's not what those girls are running. So at first I think I was just kind of in survival mode and 
put in the work and, you know, maybe they took me to some like local dual meets or kind of home meets, but I didn't travel like a ton, but I just kept working hard. And I think people talked to me, you know, I, I went on to be decently successful, especially after college. And I think people think that's just always how it was for me. And it's, it's not, I literally just PR'd a little bit, a couple seconds, every time I raced for three years, four years. And, you know, by the time you get to be a senior, that couple seconds, every race has turned into two or three minutes, which just kind of paid off for me. So it was a really slow, gradual improvement. And so um, event wise, I ended up focusing primarily on kind of the longer stuff. I never did a 10K, but I ran uh, the steeplechase and I was pretty decent at that. And uh, like the 5K and 3K. You just said really well, there wasn't this like hockey stick graph on the chart in terms of like, I don't know what happened one summer, it just all clicked. And it was just kind of the consistent, smaller gains and progress was kind of your story. Right. And I mean, there was one season where I did drop over the course of the season, maybe like 90 seconds in the 5k. But you're like you said, it was it was bigger chunks, but it was still like, okay, 15 seconds in that race, and then 20 more seconds in the next race. And I think a lot of that was just generating confidence. But yeah, it was mostly just like brick by brick, you know, you keep improving. My my dad always used to tell me if you improve every time you race, you know, eventually you're going to have a world record, which <laughs> he was joking, but I thought of it that way. Like, well, if I'm improving every time, like, man, I raced 15, 20 times a year. So, you know, two or three years, that can be pretty good. And that's honestly just kind of how it ended up happening. Before we leave the University of North Carolina behind us, I mean, talk a bit about some of your, some of the highlights, let's say, from your time running there. Favorite moments, favorite wins, records, et cetera. Yeah, it was honestly one of the most uh, incredible experiences, you know, of my life. Just like I said, growing up such a fan of the school and being an athlete there. And, you know, it's just, it's just a really amazing university to be a part of. Uh, we won two national basketball championships while I was there. So that was a highlight. But uh, in terms of my sport, I mean, I think the thing I hold in highest, I don't know, something that I'm the most proud of is that my last two years, I was the team captain of, you know, both the track team and the cross country team. And it was meaningful to me because I was not the best on the team. I wasn't even close to the best on the team. And so I really kind of think I found, you know, my voice and like my leadership skills there and just really learned how to work hard. Um, and I had some really successful team, my best friend, you know, won NCAAs and that was really amazing watching her. So just really getting behind the community of the sport, I think is what I fell in love with. And yeah, it was really cool to kind of be in that leadership role on my team. Talk about life after UNC. Yeah. So, I mean, when I finished, like I said, I wasn't a standout and I wasn't graduating, you know, thinking I was going to be getting paid to run or anything like that at all. But when I had been running for 10 years and like I said, had gotten better almost every single time I had raced, it seemed crazy to me to think about just quitting because I wasn't on a team anymore. So at the time I actually thought I wanted to coach college. Uh, so Carolina kept me on kind of as like a volunteer assistant role and in hopes of building into maybe eventually an actual coaching role, but I kept training on my own. And during that time, jumped up a lot in distance and started doing uh, marathons and, and 10Ks on the track and actually ended up qualifying for both the 2012 Olympic trials and the marathon, as well as in the 10K, which was, that was a pretty big progression, I guess, in, in just a matter of a couple of years. That kind of wrapped my time up in North Carolina because I had realized that my potential in training by myself had kind of been reached. And so I wanted to kind of move to a different environment, which is a different story. But yeah, I spent three more years in Chapel Hill coaching. And again, decided I didn't actually want to coach college for various reasons. But 
yeah, spent eight wonderful years in that town and I'm still obsessed with that school. So it was a wonderful time in my life. Seems like we might kind of end up touching on this more a bit later in the conversation, but anything in particular that kind of stands out when you say like, I kind of realized I didn't really want to coach college. I love college athletics and I love, like I had such a great experience in college and I'm very thankful for the kind of coach I had. You know, I did not come out feeling like I was burned out. I did not come feeling, come out feeling like I had been, you know, abused, not literally, but just like, you know, beaten for five years. I didn't feel like that. I still loved the sport and my, that was my experience there. And so I, I always want to answer this question, not acting, not coming across as if I'm saying anything negative about collegiate athletics whatsoever. But once I was on the other side and I saw how political it is and how much of a business it is. And how much pressure, you know, your coaching staff is under from administration. And I guess at the end of the day, almost how much little control you actually have as a coach, um, not even job security. You know, you don't get to choose necessarily where you live. And the travel is hard and it's a lot of travel. There were just some things that I thought maybe I'd step away and maybe I would eventually come back to it. And, and I have found coaching and I do love coaching. But for me, the college environment, at least at that time and up until now, wasn't meshing with, I think, the kind of lifestyle I wanted. So where do you head? I guess I was training totally by myself um, and ended up running pretty decent in the 10K, like 32, 30 something. And so Brad Hudson was is a very good kind of distance coach, mostly specializes in the marathon, uh, was kind of putting a little group together in Boulder at the time. It was mostly men at that time. That's 2012. So just a couple months before his group of guys had had, you know, like the best collective performance at the trials. And I knew I wanted to go to the marathon. I knew that was where I'd be strongest, even though I never ran what I feel like I should have, but still. And so, yeah, he called me, I think while I was in Eugene uh, racing the Olympic trials and said, I'd really like to coach you. Like, why don't you come out to Boulder? And I think I packed my car up like a month later uh, and drove out and yeah, haven't looked back. That was um, what, eight or nine years ago. We're going to get to the point where, like, my understanding is that you recently finished up a master's from the University of Denver in sport and performance psychology. Do I have that right? Yep. All that's correct. So talk a little bit about, I don't know, I guess period from 2012 up until kind of where you're working on this master's degree. What is that part of your life looking like? Were you just kind of blinkers on and just trying to really work on progressing times? Yeah. I mean, at, at the end of the day, I wanted to see what my potential was. Um, and, and like I said, I thought it was in the marathon and I thought, I still think Brad's one of the best marathon coaches. And so I wanted to give myself a shot and I improved under him. I think I dropped like six or seven minutes and ended up running 235 or something, which is respectable, but not what I thought I could run. And during that time, yeah, of course you're doing some soul searching of you know, I wasn't getting paid to run. I was still working and uh, I was coaching high school. And so you're always kind of thinking, you know, what do I want to do after I'm done or after my you know, body kind of needs a break or is ready to be done? And I knew it was some version of coaching, but, you know, I'd kind of gone through everything. Like I tried the three years of college and was like, no, that's not for me. I tried high school. I loved it, but it's honestly just really hard to make that your primary thing for many reasons. You know, pay's not very good. The hours work really hard. And so I think I started to realize, and I, and I coach on the side, I, co I still coach probably 35, 40 people and I do love it. But what I started to notice was when I was struggling to, to kind of go back to myself, there was a time when I stopped improving. You know, I was sitting there talking about how I got better every time I raced or at least every season, which was true until 
about 2015. And then I stopped improving and I started seeing how much it affected me. And I started seeing how much it affected my confidence and even the joy, like I, the, it wasn't even fun for me anymore. And so I really started to notice this like emotional and psychological effect that this sport was having on me, how much of my identity was wrapped up in being an athlete. Uh, and so when I started thinking about my future, I start, especially in Boulder, I was like, you know, I could keep coaching and, you know, decide on what kind of demographic I'm going to focus on, but I would just be one more good coach. There's so many great coaches. There's so many people I respect so much. But at the time, there, was n there weren't really any people I could find to help me with this like emotional and mental side. And so eventually I was like, screw it, I'm going to go back to school and, and figure this out and like try and be this resource for other people. And so I was super fortunate that the University of Denver actually has like the best program in the country. I got into it. And so I didn't have to move or anything and got to keep training while I was going to grad school. And yeah, I graduated about a year ago. And so since then have kind of shifted more towards uh, mental performance work with athletes. I love this. Okay. I love going to get an advanced degree for the sake of kind of trying to solve your own kind of personal question or problem when it's like, I don't know what's going on here and I'd like to figure this out. And when you go into a course of study with that kind of wildly specific and personal motivation, it's like turning the lights up in the room. You know, it's one thing to be like, I don't know, I'm going to go get a degree in finance. It might be a good career. I've always just found extremely good motive to be like, let me just drink all this in. So let's talk about that. I mean, what were some of the big takeaways or some of the best parts of that time in your course of study? Did you kind of discover new avenues, new methods, new tactics? It's a very broad question, but I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, like you said, I, when I think back to co like college and people ask me my major, I'm like, oh, I majored in track and field. What do you mean? So when I decided to go get my master's, even my family was like, what? You don't like school, but you're right. I was obsessed and I did, I, I read everything. Like I devoured everything that they had to offer me because I was so fascinated. And honestly, I think the biggest takeaway, or maybe at least the thing that hit me first was that the whole time I had been in sports, it was like, if you're not racing well, or if workouts aren't clicking, like figure it out, you need to go home and figure it out. And I'm like, well, I don't know how to figure it out. And so they're just, it just wasn't this, it wasn't as talked about. And so I think one thing was normalizing, normalizing the struggle and the experience of, you know, the pressure that you feel also recognizing that like, maybe this is just me, but to me, it helps like a lot of what we study is also the physiological impact of these emotions and thoughts and stuff. So you're not like, when you can connect that and you can, it's biological and that like there are real things happening in your body that are because of these maybe negative thoughts or anxiety or pre-race nerves or whatever you want to call it. But what you're experiencing is very real and it's also very controllable. And so kind of learning those things has been huge for me, but also with the athletes I work with. And then on the other side, I would say I ca I've kept racing and training, you know, through this whole time. And I think that's given me such an advantage in being able to connect with the athletes I work with, because to be honest with you, I, I did try and see a sports uh, psychologist when I was running, you know, 10, 10 plus years ago, and he was amazing. And he probably had so much to offer me, but because I didn't think he understood what I was going through, I never went back. I went one time. And so now I'm able to connect with my athletes and be like, Hey, I know what you're talking about. Trust me. Like I just raced last week. And let me tell you, like, I didn't even sleep the night before I was so nervous. And so there's just this I think trust you can build when you're in the trenches too. You know, you're in there trying to figure it out too. And I'm going to help as much as I can with 
my own experiences mixed with this knowledge of psychology and human behavior and physiology that I have. But at the end of the day, we're all just trying to figure it out. And I'll try and help you as best I can, you know, from the things that I know. What does work look like for you these days? I have been coaching uh, before I ever went into grad school. In fact, that's like my my most of my livelihood, at least 50% of it. Um, and so I maintain a list of about or a roster of maybe 35 to 40 athletes. And I kind of cap it right there. Just, just with my time is about what I can handle. And so of course, like mental performance and sports psychology bleed into that. I would be a terrible coach if it didn't. But for the most part, the, what that looks like is more traditional coaching, you know, writing training plans, helping with race goals. And it's kind of started to trend more towards primarily trail and ultra runners, but I still do coach, you know, some marathoners and people on the road. And so most of them, actually almost all of them I've been coaching for four or five or six years. So it's been like a long relationship. But then on the mental performance side, I do work with a number of clients, you know, regularly where I'm not their coach, you know, I'm not involved in their training plans, any kind of like actual preparation, but I help them. They're, most of them are high level athletes. Some of them actually younger, like in high school and are dealing with kind of the pressures of being at like really high performing high school programs and then looking to go to college uh, and, and get a scholarship and kind of thrive in that environment as well. So for them, it's a lot of dealing with, you know, pressure dealing with at that point in your life, at that stage in your life, you don't have a ton of control over your own training. That's hard for a lot of them. You know, if you're getting selected for the varsity squad, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with injuries? How do you deal with handling, you know, the intense load of school and taking, you know, advanced classes, but also trying to train at your maximum? So just all the kind of the things that come along with that. You are also working on a book right now, right? Yes. Yes. I'm super excited about it. I think it's going to turn out really cool. Sports psychology and ultra running. Do I have this right? That's just like the topic of what the book is basically in a nutshell is just, yeah, sports psychology within ultra running. Should we take a minute and brainstorm some titles? If anybody has a good one, yeah, hit me up, please. I'm not creative. <laughs> we can go with that until we, you know, until we best it. But I take it then this is going to be a book that very much is, you know, related to what you have just been studying at the University of Denver and what you learned in that course of study. And then as you are, you know, I guess trying to add your own thoughts and tactics, perhaps methods. Is this kind of, did I get the gist right? Yeah. I mean, it, the idea came up. I found ultra running when I was in grad school and there was this light bulb that went off in my head, like, oh my God, like this sport is so different than any other discipline of running that I've done. And I've done all of them. I've done every single one of them. And it's just, people don't believe me when I say this because, and I'm like, trust me, I've done them all. It has so, running a hundred miles has so much less to do with running than most of the other events I've done. You know, it's so psychological and I think it takes up such a bigger piece of the pie. I became kind of obsessed, kind of what we were talking about before with just like devouring information. And part of the problem is there's not very much. There hasn't been a lot of research or, you know, kind of more academic writing about sports psychology in ultra runners, which to me, is, I think that's going to change because I think it's catching on, you know, how... Um, when you think about people like Courtney Dualter, who's, you know, a friend of mine, and I, I see the things mm -hmm. that she does, and I'm like, of course, she's an incredible athlete. Absolutely. But there's also something psychologically that she's figured out. And so basically, what the book writing process has looked like is a lot of time, you know, spent researching and bringing in, you know, very relevant and real kind of scientific, uh, psychological, biological like data, like here's some hard facts about how our brains work mixed with mm -hmm 
hours and hours of interviews and conversations with people like Courtney DeWalter and Jim Walmsley and Maggie Guterol and anybody that you could think of that's kind of a who's who in ultra running. You know, I've spent hours on the phone with them and kind of mixing that information together into something that would be useful, actionable to just like the average reader kind of, I don't like the word dumbing it down because that's not what I mean, but just making it something that's easy to understand and comprehend and then take away, okay, how can I work on this? Like in my own training. That sounds awesome. What are some of the surprising things where you're like, oh, wow, Courtney said this and Jim echoed something very similar. And then turns out Maggie did as well. Like, has there been any stuff that you've just been surprised that it's like, man, I keep hearing these one, two or three things, you know, or is it like, no, it's not so much been about surprises. It's just reinforcing maybe some hypotheses you already held. What, is, what does it kind of look like? Yeah, I honestly, a little of both. Some of it has been very confirming, like kind of what I have gathered. And I think the advantage I have there is that I've, number one, done these races. And number two, you know, been fortunate enough to kind of have you know, I've raced a 50 miler with Courtney where we were together for 35 miles. You know, I've raced Claire Gallagher where we were together for, so I've kind of had a, for a front row seat to some of these things. And so maybe if I didn't have those experiences, I wouldn't have been as, I don't want to say spot on because I wasn't spot on, but you know, a lot of things I'm like, okay, this affirms what I thought, but there's also been some surprising conversations and I won't ruin the book, but my, you know, my conversation with Jim was surprising. And at first I walked away from it like, man, I had that really wrong. But then like the more I thought about it, the more I was like, oh no, actually this is like even more fascinating. Um, but if I had to pick a trend, I would say it's not across the board, but most of the people I've talked to kind of two things. One, have some kind of like, it's not just about the results. Like there's some kind of connection to what they're doing or, or some kind of love for being out there. Something that kind of extends far beyond like just results. And then the second is just like a curiosity, like these people aren't afraid to fail. They're not afraid to lose. They're not afraid to, you know, fall short of their goal, which for me, maybe that isn't like to some people that might not sound surprising, but for me coming from a track and road background, that was a lot more objective and a lot more results-based. It was very crazy to me to kind of see this new environment and see this new mentality that these athletes had that I wasn't used to. So yeah, it's been really cool. And like I said, I'm super excited to share these conversations because some were surprising and some were not surprising. And, and I th actually, it's interesting because when you talk to these people, they don't realize what they're saying because maybe they haven't thought about it like that. It's just like the skill they've developed through, I don't know what, like maybe it was just the way they were brought up, some sports they've been involved in in the past, just through their uh, moving through ultra running. I don't know wh where they've gotten kind of these mindsets or these mental approaches. But then once I kind of point it out, they're like, oh, wow. Yeah, I guess I never really thought about it, but I do that. That's, that's interesting. Like they just maybe haven't thought about it. So it's kind of cool to bring that awareness to. It's funny too. I mean, this term ultra running, if you kind of walk up to a runner and kind of just say, hey, uh, ultra running, when I say that term, what do you think of? I don't know what the percentage divide is, but I definitely think some people automatically think of longer road races. And then there's other people that just automatically think of longer trail runs. And sometimes there is no crossover in those two things, right? And I guess I would be curious in your work, if quote unquote ultra running has like mostly to you been about ultra trail running or are you like, no, man, I, given your background, like you tend to think of like, whether it's pavement, whether it's trails, you're kind of approaching this in a 50, 50 way. 
I'm trying to. I've definitely tried to, yeah, I agree with you, kind of not fall into one of those two extremes. I, I think when you're talking about the psychological things and that, which is what I'm so obsessed with, honestly, at this point, yeah. of course, I think when you put a race in the mountains, uh, there's a lot more that comes with that. And there's, you know, the, the unknown and the acceptance of that and the adaptability and the problem solving skills all become a little more crucial. That, and that's not to say like, I would be terrified to run a 50 K on the roads. Like that would scare me more than on the trails because I'm just not fast anymore. And that comes with its own, you know, components as well. But with, the, the book focusing on what it is, I think most of the content probably is more specific to, I don't want to say the extremes because I don't, it, it's not like it definitely people that just run 50 Ks and maybe the lower ultras would still benefit from it. But I think the longer the race, the more the psychological piece, the bigger the, it gets, like the bigger piece of the pie it is kind of the longer and more unpredictable the conditions are, the more important it is. So it's important always. It's important in 100 meters. But I think the long, the greater the distance goes, the bigger the piece grows. This is a question that has come up a number of times in our off-the-couch conversations. But, you know, when you just mentioned a few minutes ago, the like, it tends to still, I guess, be a bit of a the case or a generalization that kind of works that people, you know, running on tracks or on pavement tend to be a bit more time focused results focused and you were saying like man then i found this world of like trail running and that seemed to not be the case we've talked a lot about this and collected a number of opinions but like where are you in terms of thinking like we will continue to see that difference held between right trail and track versus it seems like a lot of people feel like man the kind of road or track mentality, we think that that is going to continue to bleed into the trail scene. Like thoughts about that in terms of what's trending or thought if you don't like that trend, I mean, what do you think maybe we should do about it? Maybe we do nothing about it. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I spend a lot of time thinking about that too. I do think that it will continue kind of the more traditional events that people have been competing in for longer will continue to bleed into to ultra and trail running as people get intrigued, as people, you know, I really think about people like Jim who have kind of started this movement of, you know, someone that's really great road runner as well and could be pretty good at that. And I think people will continue to move over. And I think that that will drop the times and increase the competitive competitiveness, all things that I think are probably good for the sport. Uh, what I hope doesn't happen is that it doesn't change the nature of the sport, because when I'm speaking on it, yeah, I'm, I am talking about like the focus and the emphasis, but I spent 10 years racing track after college and the vibe is different. The environment's different. The vibe with your competitors is different and on the trails. It doesn't feel like, like I want to beat the person next to me, but that's not my focus. My focus is like, let me cover this crazy trail as best I can. And I hope I do it better than everyone else. So it's not as like ruthless. And so I hope that doesn't ever go away at the same time. I think, you know, as people want to break records and win races, of course, there's going to be some shift to maybe thinking more about the results and the times and the paces, but that's also like not that possible, at least in my opinion. And so I think the sport rewards those people who, even if they have maybe like a, a more objective goal, if you're not able to be more subjective about your experience and more in tune with your effort and what's coming at you, you're not going to be successful in the trails anyway. And we've seen that happen. I've seen people try and make the change you know, from the road or track who just like can't handle how unpredictable it is or how, 
oh, my, wow, the conditions are not what they thought they were going to be. And they kind of freak out. And so I kind of think the sport's going to take care of that in and of itself, because I don't think you can be successful if you don't have the right mindset. And if you don't approach it in the way that most of us do of just like, man, I'm so thankful to be part of this community. And this is like a collective effort. And I want, you know, I want to get the best out of myself. At the end of the day, we all just love being out here. And I don't think you can thrive in that environment unless you have that mindset. So I'm not like super worried about it, but I do, yes, also spend a lot of time thinking about that. So here's a bit of a hypothetical. Like I'm kind of imagining now some track athletes and, you know, road marathoners listening to this. And again, hypothetically, maybe they're like, man, you guys are kind of painting us out to be these like, you know, I'm constantly staring at my watch and, you know, my heart rate monitor. And the only thing I care about are results. And like, what do you think the odds are? I mean, if you're right, that it's like, hey, turns out being less hung up on the specific result turns out to be an effective way of running well and kind of in a, in a healthful way. Well, then that should translate to the track and to pavement. And so I don't quite hear about the uprising in those circles, but like, why not? Or am I just missing it, right? Like if it works, it works. And if it's kind of the secret sauce, why wouldn't that just become sort of the norm of any kind of competitive running? Right. I get you and I really hope that wouldn't come across that way to anyone, <laughs> but I guess I will rephrase it because this is how I felt. I actually think it's just the nature of the sport that creates those parameters, at least for me. So I was talking to my friend about this the other day. You know, I was never going to make an Olympic team. I was never going to make a world team. So I was not competing for first or second or third. I was competing to get to nationals, to get to the Olympic trials. And so I was competing against the clock. And that's honestly, it's more the objective of the sport. And you know, you're chasing times and you're chasing the clock. So I'm not necessarily trying to suggest that track runners and road runners are obsessed with time and results. I'm suggesting that the sport is based around that. It's based around qualifying times. And so I, honestly, my, my challenge actually would be, hey, if you were like me and you didn't like that and you didn't thrive in that environment, maybe you should switch to the trails because then it does, like that's how I found success because I didn't thrive well under that, trying to chase the clock and, you know, just qualify for a meet, never running in the front, never you know, just being intuitive about it. And so, um, no, I don't think it's the individuals that have that mindset necessarily. I think it's just the objectiveness of a very black and white sport. It's all about the times. I mean, well, one, I guess I would also say like, there definitely are individuals who think this way, right? And like, you were one of them. So I, I don't think this is, we're not trying to put anybody down here. I guess the question is for those people still very much in that world who understandably have to be obsessed with the cutoff mark, right? And with the specific time, I mean, it just strikes me that like, well, if there is a way to, but like, if there is a way to help them, or if this is me, hey, Addie, like I, I gotta make the, if I don't hit this time, it's over for me. It's like, well, that is very black and white, but what could you offer to help me still progress as a runner and run faster, but yet do it in a better, with more psychological tools at my disposal, right? And I think that's the kind of, maybe that's the kind of sleight of hand or the trick, right? Does that make sense? Like, okay, well, yeah, that's true. Like you're kind of screwed if you don't hit exactly that time, but maybe we still can figure out some things that would make that seem much less uh, 
anxiety provoking than it kind of might. Yeah. I mean, I work on, like, like I said, most of the people <laughs> I'm working with are track athletes and we talk about this all the time. And this is probably one of the things we talk about the most. And what I tell them that they, they fight against me for a second at first, but your time, the time that you want to run, or maybe you want to get like, you know, if you have to qualify by a certain position, if you have to get top five or top three or whatever, that is not in your control. That is not a controllable factor. You cannot control that. And they're like, what? I'm like, you can't, that is, but what that is, is that is a result of you controlling all the things that you can. If you know that that time's possible and you can back up from that and say, okay, well, for me to run this time, what does that actually look like? What do I have to execute? What do I have to, and that could be months before, that could be the night before into the actual race. That could be an actual, you know, more micro like in the race. But when you break it down into like, what do I need to execute in order for the outcome to be this time or this result, then you start focusing on things that you can control. But if you just go into a race like, well, I really hope I run 1530 today. And that's all you're thinking about, which is what I did. It doesn't happen because as soon as you look at the clock and it doesn't say this, that you're not on pace anymore, you're done. Um, but if you can kind of shift your focus to the things that you can take control of, knowing that if you execute those things, that the, the time on the clock will read what you want it to. It's usually a better experience and, and usually a better experience, too, if you fall short. So. Yeah, you've got a list to say, like, I was effective at this, I followed this plan, and the goals are broken out into more than just the glaring single number. Yeah, and yeah, constructive feedback on, you know, instead of walking away like, oh, I didn't hit the time, I suck. Yeah, you go back through your list and like, well, where did I mess up and where can I do better next time? It's a little more constructive. Very cool. I can't wait to check out your book. So you got to keep going. <laughs> it sounds like you're not that far away, just a couple chapters maybe. Yeah, I've got a little bit left and then obviously some kind of final run throughs. Um, yeah. It's been, it's been a, such a fun project, but much harder than I thought it would be. I'm like so, several times I've been like, how did I convince anyone that I can write a book? I don't know. <laughs> um, but I think it's gonna be rewarding when I finish it. Did you like consider yourself a writer? I mean, I know you co-authored, right? The Little Black Book. So this isn't your first rodeo um, in terms of authoring or whatever, but do you, some people kind of think of themselves as writers and some very much do not. Where do you kind of fall on that spectrum? It's interesting because I've, that's been one of my side gigs for a long time. I do a lot of freelance writing. I, I do like a column for Trailrunner Magazine. Um, and so I guess in some sense, I would say like I have experience at writing, uh -huh. but I've never said I'm a writer. But so many people have been like, you need to write a, my parents, my friends, like you need to write a book. You're such a good writer. And so it's more been like told to me until I finally got in it. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't know if it's just that I, it's so subjective that I can't assess it. But there's been so many times writing this book where I'm like, oh, my God, I hope people like want to read this, um, which I think they will. But I, I don't know. It's kind of this identity crisis of. It's a thing I spend a lot of time doing and I enjoy it. And obviously it's right now like my full-time job. So I guess I would have to say I'm a writer, but we'll see, you know, once you get a book out there, it kind of changes, makes you feel a little bit more credible. So that's really cool. Shifting gears. Talk to me about Outrun. Yeah. So Outrun, um, we started about a year, maybe about a year ago, a year and a half. Um, so it kind of started small. It was just honestly the beginning stages we thought it would maybe just be um like a local lgbtq plus like running group just in the denver boulder area and quickly from there we had people reaching out from other places like oh is there we want to do something like that here and so it kind of grew from there into 
maybe building more of a community around it that's, um, you know, with chapters kind of opening up in different states and cities. And then from there, we kind of started to recognize also maybe more of the like advocacy and actual like initiative work that could be done in our sport to make it, you know, maybe more inclusive and welcoming to certain communities. And so we've recently kind of started launching different projects that we're working on there to kind of help uh, at least do our part as much as we can to, to kind of push that progress forward. Can you say a little bit more about like just what led you to start this, whether, you know, your own personal story or like what you were really seeing as maybe a need to like create that space, you know, for people to feel more comfortable in the running world? I started it with my partner, Corey, who's also a very incredible runner. Um, she ran for Hanson's Distance Project for a couple of years, was really good in college. Um, and we actually met because we were, but we both made like a U.S. cross country team to go race at this like kind of European USA challenge um, over in Scotland. That's how we met. But we didn't actually get together until three or four years later. And part of that was because you know neither one of us at that point were like open about anything. And I think part of that was just kind of lack of visibility in in the running community in terms of especially distance running. I guess I would say you know there's just not a ton of diversity, and that's in general. You know, that's like racial diversity. Even up until the last 10 years, you know, women are, are crushing marathons now and make up almost half of the, the registrants. But, you know, that wasn't always the case. And then when you shift over even to the sport I do now and trail and ultra running, there's just there's almost zero diversity of any kind. And it's not lack of welcomingness. I've I love this community and I've been part of it my whole life. And so we kind of look at it more as closing the gap between, you know, a community that's looking for support and encouragement and empowerment and connecting them with the community that provides that, which is the running community, which I love. So we were like, you know, we just need to make, create more visibility and create more of like this, like I said, just basically kind of connect the gap. I've never felt any kind of negative, um, you know, discrimination or unwelcome or quite the opposite. And so we just kind of want more people to have that same experience uh, and to feel like it's a, a kind of a safe place for them to be. Yeah. And I mean, one, that makes me feel very proud of the running community for what you just said, you know, that you're like, I actually never felt that there was this discrimination or, you know, that you didn't face that, right? I mean, we are having a lot of conversations in this country right now where people very much have felt that and in varying degrees of incredibly violent ways, right? And so one, not to generalize out, but just in your own experience to hear that you don't have apparently a number of like awful anecdotes to relay that were kind of awful. Great. But I think to then create this space, you know, to, it's like, well, the work doesn't end there. It's like, let's just ensure that we keep creating these increasingly inclusive and welcoming environments. That seems really cool and sounds like kind of exactly what you're up to. No, I mean, exactly. I think the thing that I've been kind of pushing to people the most is just because you're not involved in some kind of active, you know, discriminating or not wanting certain communities to be welcome doesn't mean that you're not passively or subconsciously or unknowingly creating that vibe. And that's what we've discovered, especially when we what we're looking at now and kind of what we're helping with and what we're serving as a resource to races and events and race directors with is noticing how is your website how are you marketing this event you know it, even the thing that was called out recently with runners world of you know how many 
racial minorities they've had on their cover in the last 20 years. And it, it, they probably didn't even notice. It probably was not, I mean, I'm willing to guess they, it was not intentional. And so basically just kind of guiding people into having that self-examination process of like, well, what kind of verbiage am I using on my website? What is the registration process like? How many options am I giving for you know, gender um, identification? Is there a transgender policy that's fair? So what we're doing actually is doing the legwork for these races and doing the research and having the conversations with the right people in our community to make sure that we are accurately representing their needs and wants. And we're going to create a best practices guide basically to like how to put on an event that is at least more inclusive or actively welcoming instead of like, well, you know, we're not discriminating against anyone, but that doesn't mean you're actively, actively welcoming, you know, people to come take part in your event. And so then at that point, you know, I think a lot of people are afraid to do the wrong thing. So they just do nothing. And because they're not doing anything bad or negative, they think that's okay. And it's not. And I've had to have this, the exact same self-examination process with myself of like, well, okay, but just because you're not adding to the problem doesn't mean you're actively trying to make it better or make, you know, your little bubble a more welcoming space, whatever that looks like. And so at that point, you know, it's, if we kind of can create this resource, then, then there's not an excuse. And if a race or an event chooses not to utilize that, that's totally up okay. And that's up to them and that's their right. But there can't be an excuse of, well, I just didn't know. I didn't know what to do. Um, so we're kind of trying to take that that option off the table. When we get into the topic and question of gender identity, what are you kind of seeing right now as the emerging questions? And I guess I'll ask as are we moving toward a kind of consensus on the solutions part? Or would you say like, wow, there is still just a whole lot, there's a whole range and a whole lot of views and a whole lot of like, we're a long way from figuring this out. It's, I think there's still a lot of questions to be, I don't think that we're anywhere near, unfortunately, yeah. coming to a consensus because I think the opposing views are very passionate opposing views. I mean, even just recently, which was to me, I guess you can figure out my view, my standpoint on it is, was heartbreaking. Um, the the law that just went into place in Idaho, I believe it was, where in high school athletics, they're not allowing transgender girls to compete, which when I think back to myself and I think about running, have, having been the most positive, productive coping resource I've ever had, I don't know what I would have done with my life if I didn't have that. And so to take that option away from kids to preserve what? Like at that point, you're you're prioritizing awards and championships and trophies over someone's mental health. And I think that's wrong. And that's coming from a woman who competes against, you know, potentially other transgender women who could possibly affect my result. But I'm okay with that because I think that that's a right that they have. And so I'm very passionate about my viewpoint on it. But, you know, those on the imposing view are also very passionate, very passionate about theirs and theirs are valid. Um, but I think it's going to be hard to come to an agreement. And so I understand why some races are you know, apprehensive or don't know what kind of regulations to put into place. I couldn't applaud Western states more for, you know, what they've done for kind of being one of the most prestigious, iconic races, you know, to put that policy in place that they did, I thought was incredible. And I hope sets, you know, sets a standard. You know, in Western states, there's no prize money. There's no real benefit to any placement, except if you're in the top 10, you get invited back the next year. You get to bypass the lottery and you get to bypass qualifying. So the, the rule they put into place is if you are not in the top 10 and you are a transgender woman competing, go for it. You don't need to show any proof of anything. 
if you place in the top 10 and therefore could potentially be taking a spot from another woman, then they will ask for, you know, proof of the different hormone protocols that you're on. So I think that's fair because I think that where I get really heated is most people's arguments are, I mean, we can just say it, the only only people that anybody has an issue with are, you know, male to female transgender athletes because they think they have an advantage. You know, I worked at a residential treatment center, have worked with kids in this situation who were, you know, under 18. If anybody thinks that anybody is going to go through that process and put themselves through that just to win a race, they're out of their minds. They're out of their minds. And that's why I get so mad because nobody's doing that. Nobody's doing that. Sorry, I I get heated about it. But, you know, I just don't think like until you can see how much this population is suffering and how many, you know, suicides there are and how many mental health issues there are just because they don't feel accepted to do the things they want to do. Like, how in the world can we possibly prioritize a position in a race over that? I can't understand it. And like I said, I'm one of the ones that could very much be affected by it. And I'm okay with that. Um, And actually, most women I've talked to that, you know, are elites trying to win these races are okay with that. So, you know, there's some policies going into place basically where if there is some kind of something on the line, whether it's prize money or qualifying or, you know, something that is just beyond like, you know, someone getting whatever place in a race that doesn't actually impact anything, nobody should have an issue with that, in my opinion. Then you do have to have some kind of like verification process of, you know, you're undergoing hormone therapy that puts you in the same least rough playing field as the women that you're competing against. Just to make sure that I'm kind of clear and tracking with what you're saying, if you were to kind of lay out a couple of the most significant changes or advancements that the running community could make along these lines, I just want to give you a chance to like, you know, state these as clearly as possible from where you are these days with respect to some of these issues. So I think a lot of it is kind of just general marketing and, and, you know, how you're promoting your event. But then in terms of like maybe more administrative or logistically, even just the registration process. I mean, there's most races you have the option of male or female and there are people who are non-binary and maybe that's not many. Maybe it's one one or maybe it's five runners, maybe it's 10, but that's still, you know, 10 people that could really benefit from being part of a community. And then I think having some kind of actual transgender policy in place is productive because otherwise, if you don't have one, what happens is someone gets called out and then it creates, you know, that that shouldn't happen because with the thing that got passed in Idaho, if someone suspects, these are high schoolers, mind you, these are 15, 16 year olds, that's which could be traumatizing. If someone suspects that one of them, a female competing in a race is transgender, they have the right to accuse them and, and make them go through a physical examination, which I think is like, I can't even wrap my head around that. So I think having some kind of policy in place, you know, protects the, like accusations, protects things from getting, I don't think it's enough to just have nothing because it does affect enough people. And it just, I think, creates some kind of safety that these athletes feel, you know, competing at these races. I want to let you get going here soon. I want to ask you What's the best question I haven't asked you? I've been ruminating a lot on this recently and was actually having a conversation with my partner, Corey, about this the other day. But I was just saying, like, I feel so lucky that I found something that I'm as passionate about as I am running. And I look at my life and I'm like, well, my life is running, but it's, you know, I coach, I help other athletes deal with, you know, the disappointments of poor race, you know, all the mental, mental things. I'm trying to make a difference and make the sport more more welcoming and hopefully leave it better than it was when I got here. 
so it's not really a question, but I guess I just really like to stress that's the role that it has played in my life and like the amount of the people that I've been able to meet and the community that I've been able to build. And like I said, you know, the coping uh, resource that it's given me, how grounded I feel that I have something that I care so much about that uh, when I was talking to Corey about it, I was like, you know, my hope is that everybody has something like this in their life. And so I've just been thinking about that a lot recently and I feel really thankful. And, you know, I've obviously put a lot of time in my entire life into this sport, but it's given me everything back. And so I guess, I don't know if people have something similar, I just kind of encourage them to go all in because that's what I've done. And it's been, you know, pretty magical. That's great. Addie, this has been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for the conversation. And um, you got to come back on when your book comes out or after I've had a chance to read the book, uh, but that would be really fun. Um, it sounds like it's going to be terrific and uh, would love to have you back on and, and go over that. So on that note, you know, no pressure, but good luck finishing it up. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I got to go out strong, make sure I finish hard and don't just let it pitter out. <laughs> That's right. And good luck on the title too. I, I love titles, like they're hard, but they're really fun to kind of think about. So um, I can't wait to see uh, what you settle on for it either. So it's been the hardest thing I've had to write for the whole book. Who known? <laughs> well, you know, again, uh, no pressure, but uh, we, we want it to be great, Addie. <laughs> hey, I'll let you get going. Thanks again and look forward to talking to you again down the line. Yeah, thank you so much. It was awesome. Well, that's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Addie for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Crested Butte, Colorado, we hope that you are doing well. And until next time, please be safe. Please take good care of yourself and everybody else. Please keep moving forward. And we will talk to you again next week.